first of all, a word of apology. Um, those who have come expressly this morning because you were looking forward to uh, the next talk in the series on finding joy, finding joy in conflict, and you've been kind of waiting this morning to kind of know how to find joy in conflict. Maybe you've invited loads of people as well who you were in conflict with, thinking this was the morning for them. Um, I'm really sorry. Um, not actually going to do that talk. I was, I was kind of wrestling with it this week, looking at the next passage in Philippians 3. Uh, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. And I was there, and I remembered it was Mothering Sunday, and thought... It didn't, just didn't quite fit. So um, we are uh, putting finding joy in conflict to one side. We will still be continuing our series on finding joy, and we will be in Philippians chapter 3, but just looking at the verses after that. Um, and so if you want a title, someone asked me for a title uh, after it at the last site. I hoped it had been pretty clear. Uh, it's finding joy in Jesus. I kind of think that's kind of appropriate. Um, some of it you may think, well, this is familiar stuff. We know this. But Paul starts off in Philippians 3, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. And I want what I have to say to be like a safeguard for you, to, for you to hear familiar things, but to receive them with joy, to lay a firmer foundation in your lives. I want to pray before we get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you even for the way you are speaking to us as we were worshipping earlier. Thank you for the breaking out of your glorious presence in this place and so crave more of that. And as we engage more with your word, would you cause it to come alive? Would you cause it to be like a mighty tsunami breaking over our lives? We don't want to cling on to what is safe. We want to be carried away more with you. Do you come and do that amongst us? Where we need to be challenged and confronted, please do that. Even though if it's uncomfortable, we, we want to be challenged and confronted by you. Where there are things that you want to encourage us with, God, come and encourage us. Where you want to equip us, where you want to change us. God, whatever your agenda is, whatever your will is, God, we're open to you. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know how many of you watched the last series of The Apprentice. In fact, let's find out. Who watched the last series of The Apprentice? Okay, yeah, pr pretty good going. This might well work. Well, uh, I don't know if it was for you, but the highlight for me of the last series was Stuart Baggs getting his CV pulled apart by the experts. If you missed it, here's just a small snapshot, hopefully, of what happened. Watch the screens. Good afternoon, Stuart. Take a seat. Nice to meet you. It's a damn bitch. I'm Stuart Baggs, the brand. Yeah. What on earth are you talking about? Well, you're a 21-year-old kid. You're not a brand. Well, I think when you look at what a brand means, it is... Something... No, don't, don't tell me what a brand means, OK? You are not a brand. You're not a brand. I think I might be. Fine. Let's explore this a bit further, then. Why would somebody as successful, as innovative, as yeah. big dreamer, as a brand, as you, why would you want to have a job with Lord Sugar? Because at the minute, I'm a big fish in a small pond. You're not a big fish. You're not a big fish. You're not even a fish. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, uh, the reason for showing that is, I think, kind of, everyone, all of us, are submitting our CVs 
the whole time. Not, not just to secure a place in Lord Sugar's illustrious establishment, not just to get a place in a particular company or on a college course or in a particular club. I think we do it relationally all the time. Now, to illustrate the point, I want to take you back to what, for some of you at least, was perhaps a very painful moment in your life, starting secondary school. Can you remember about that far? A lot of you know what I'm talking about here. It's like you grew up in this great school where everyone knew you. You'd established your identity. People knew what you liked and what you didn't like. People knew where you grew up. In fact, a lot of people knew exactly where you lived and what you were into and what you weren't into. And then suddenly, very cruelly, you're wrenched out of that smaller context and placed in a different school, a much bigger school, with a whole bunch of people who don't know you. And no, I'm not in that picture. Don't try and spot me. It's nothing to do with me, I don't think. And it's like, you have to develop your reputation all over again. So what do you do? Well, you figure out your best achievements and your best attributes. And then you begin to present them in order to look cool and try and get some new friends. Remember doing that? Or was it just me? Is it? I, th I think most of us tried to do that. Here was what I did. Here was my equivalent of a CV when I started secondary school. The best thing that I could put on paper was that I had a Sinclair ZX Spectrum. Uh, does this mean anything to anyone? Has anyone, did anyone have a Spectrum? Wow. Well, just for you. I've brought along my Sinclair ZX Spectrum. Come in. You can come and look. Don't touch later. Fully 48K of memory. I mean, awesome stuff. That is what I used to make people think that I was cool and to get friends. And I know I'm taking you back to a prehistoric age here. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. It's an age when an apple was merely something you ate and an iPad was something used if you had conjunctivitis. Playstations and Xboxes were yet to roam the earth. I was very pleased with that one. Uh, and if you wanted, and if you, I'm glad you got it. And if you wanted a PC in your home, you needed an extension the size of a football pitch to fit it in. In that day and age, the ZX Spectrum was almost as good as it got. Boasting games such as horoscope skiing and ant attack. It really was pretty revolutionary. So I'd approach my would-be friends, and I'd say, look, back home, I've got a ZX Spectrum, so you really should be my friends. And this was working pretty well for me until I met this one kid who stopped me in my tracks and said, well, I have a Commodore 64, and I've got Daily Thompson's Decathlon. At which point, I kind of pulled out my CV, ripped it up, and said, look, I'm just going to hang out with you. Now... Most of you, you're too young to know what on earth I'm talking about. You're just kind of glazed. Trust me. The Commodore 64 was in another league altogether. Anyone have a Commodore 64? Oh, Lindsay Redgate. Wow, respect to you. Well, I'll tell you, Commodore 64, that was where it was at. And as for Daily Thompson's Decathlon, I mean, that took gaming into a whole new stratosphere. I mean, phenomenal stuff. Now, before I reminisce any further and embarrass myself anymore, my point is this. We do this all the time relationally. And it's not just a childhood thing. We're constantly showing off to try to win friends and be well thought of by others. Some of you perhaps are single. You perhaps do this romantically. You, you have a well thought through CV that you present to 
prospective suitors. You're wanting to communicate, hey, look how thin I am. Look how witty I am. Look how stylishly I dress. Look, look at my earning potential. Look at my car. Look at my flat. We do this all the time. We're, we're constantly submitting our CV. And this is certainly true spiritually. In a sense, what we do is we hold up our list of spiritual achievements, our spiritual accomplishments, the sacrifices that we've made, the good works that we've done, and we put it in God's face and we say, because of this God, be my friend. We're kind of saying, God, because I've done this, you should accept me. You should look favorably on me. You should be impressed with me. You should bless me. Now, I don't know what you would put on your spiritual CV, but I don't think anyone in this room would be able to come up with anything quite as impressive as the Apostle Paul's CV here in Philippians chapter 3. Have a listen to what he writes. Philippians 3, verse 4. Paul says, if anyone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, reasons to put confidence in their physical achievements, Paul says, I have more. And then he starts listing some of his spiritual accolades. Verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. In other words, he was a Jew from birth. He didn't become a Jew. He didn't adopt Judaism. He was born a Jew. He's saying, I'm from the right race, and I was circumcised on the right day. For him, that was something to be really boastful about. What's more, he goes, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, meaning he came from one of the two tribes that stayed faithful to King David. So he's from pretty good stock. And, reading on, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, just to explain, many of the first century Jews had become Hellenized. In other words, they'd adopted Greek culture, not Paul. He remained faithful to his religious subculture. He didn't allow the pervading views of the culture around him to influence his religious beliefs. But that's not all. He keeps going. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the most rule-keeping, devoted religious people of their day. If you remember, Jesus kind of poked fun of them at one point for actually tithing out of their spice rack. You kind of know you're religious and devoted when you give God 10% of your cinnamon. I mean, they actually tithed out of their herbs and their spices because they wanted to make sure that since God said he deserved 10% of everything, that they gave him 10% of exactly everything. These were very devoted religious people. Paul said, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. Verse 6, as for zeal persecuting the church. Paul was so passionate about his religious beliefs that he literally killed the enemies of it. People like Stephen, who was one of the leading lights in the early church. And then, just to really drive home his so-called exemplary credentials, Paul concludes, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. That's an amazing statement, because... In the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of the law, there are, get this, 613 specific commandments. And Paul's saying here, he didn't just do the Ten Commandments thing way too easy. No, he kept all 613. That's some CV. What Paul's saying in this passage is that his CV, impressive as it was, was a problem. The truth was that in becoming a follower of Jesus, 
Paul's attitude towards his CV needed to change. You see, that's part of what becoming a Christian involves. It's changing the way you look at your spiritual achievements and accomplishments. Now, a lot of people, they think that in becoming a Christian, it merely involves just rearranging their spiritual CV. So, prayer wasn't on there, now it is. Going to church, didn't really get a mention, now it does. Giving some money once in a while, that wasn't on there, now you've made sure it's included. And so you kind of rearrange it all. Or maybe you try and pad it out a bit. Ever try to do that? I mean, your CV is mostly true. A bit like Stuart Baggs earlier on. A, a little kind of grain of salt, kind of just changing it slightly. It says you are the, the manager of the sales team. What it fails to mention is that the team only consisted of you. It says that you helped shape the corporate identity, which what you meant to say was you just did the vacuuming every now and again. And when you say you played a crucial role in all the board meetings, what you failed to mention is this merely involved taking in cups of coffee when they wanted them. And maybe, maybe we can be tempted to do that kind of a finessing job with our spiritual CV. But here's what being a Christian means. You realize you can't pad out your CV. You really need to just tear it up. And that's effectively what Paul does in verse 7. He says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Here's what Paul knew and what we all need to learn. God is very selective. God is very picky when it comes to CVs. He will only take one. It's the one that belongs to Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in verse 9, I want to be found in him. I want to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. He's saying, I don't want to try and please God anymore with my own good works. I want a different kind of righteousness. I want a different sort of CV. I, I want the one that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Pretty simple. Being a Christian is realizing it's not about what you do. It's all about what Christ has done. It's not about our good works for him. It's all about his good work for us once and for all on the cross. Have a listen to how Paul puts it in another one of his letters, Ephesians 2 verse 8. He says, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul's saying, we don't trust in our own work. We trust in Christ's work. We don't trust effectively in our CV. We trust Christ's CV. I mean, think about it. Would you rather stand before God relying on your imperfect life or relying on Jesus' perfect life? Don't know about you. I'll take Jesus every time. I'm putting all of my confidence, 100% of my confidence in his sin-atoning, wrath-averting death for me. I'm putting all of my hope, 
all of my confidence in a practical way, day to day, in his glorious resurrection that conquers sin and death. You see, when you encounter Jesus, it changes the way you look at the whole world. Paul's saying, my entire worldview, the way I looked at my life, the way I looked at myself, the way I looked at God, the way I approached God, it was totally and utterly upended. Everything changed when I encountered Jesus. So much so, he'd say my chief pursuit went from following rules and regulations to following the one who is uniquely holy and perfect in every way. Instead of looking to my own work, I began looking at Christ's work. And that became my chief motivation. That became my chief pursuit. Look at what Paul says in verse 10, which in many respects is the apex of this whole passage. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's a profound verse. I want to unpack it just for a little while. First of all, I want to grasp that the word know that Paul uses here, I want to know Christ. The word know literally means to experience something. He's saying, I want to experience Christ and the power of his resurrection. So it isn't just about carrying knowledge in your head. It's experiencing something of him in a real, tangible, physical way. God wants us to not just know in our heads, but to experience him in our hearts. Perhaps some of you are thinking, well, I get that, but I'm just not wired that way. I mean, that's just not who I am. I I like to think things through. I'm far more cerebral. I I don't really feel things. Just listen to the thoughts of perhaps one of the brightest minds in the 18th century, a guy called Jonathan Edwards. He says, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and the beauty of that holiness and grace. He says there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. What's he saying? He's saying you can know all about honey. You can study the jar and the ingredients. You can watch the process by which it was made. You can wax lyrical. You can answer questions on mastermind all about honey. But until you taste it, you're not really experiencing it. In a similar way, you can know about God, but until you experience him, you don't really know him. Here's my concern. Some of you come along week after week after week, and I'm not complaining about that, don't hear me wrong. I commend you for your commitment and your faithfulness. Please come week after week after week. But you can come and you can think that just the process of coming and sitting and maybe singing the songs and listening to what's preached, and maybe you write some notes and you can remember some of it even several weeks later. And you think that's what it means to know God. But you're not really experiencing him in your daily life. My concern is that you think that's it. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. And 
I guess, to be honest, it can be a little dull sometimes. And you can feel that you ought to do things, but you lack the motivation. And other people are a little more exuberant in their worship, but you just don't get it. I mean, what is there to be so excited about? I say, your experience is so far short of what there is to experience of knowing God and walking with Him on a daily basis. I want you to consider this journal entry. This is from the 17th century, even further back. Listen to this. In the year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, from half past 10 in the evening until half an hour after midnight, fire! God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the learned, certainty, Joy, certainty, emotion, sight, joy, forgetfulness of all in the world and all that is outside of God. The world has not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. My God, will you leave me? Let me never be separated from you. Now, who was that guy? Oh, some mystical, hyper-emotional, pre-modern uneducated 17th century Christian? No, that was a guy called Blaise Pascal, the brilliant mathematician whose findings are still relied upon in academic circles today. God wants you to know him like that, to know about him in an intellectual way, certainly, but also to experience him. And down through the history of the church, that's how Christianity has been understood. It's experiential. It's connected with God. And that's the power of the resurrection that Paul refers to here. I mean, if Jesus is still dead and in the tomb, then we don't get to experience God like that. If Jesus was merely a good teacher, then all it's about is head knowledge. If Jesus was just a good man or a prophet, then we don't get to know God in any relational way. But because Jesus is alive, there's a heart connection. We actually know him. Now you need to understand, this knowledge, this experiential knowledge I'm talking about, it's not purely emotional. It's unbelievably practical. I want to give you some things to take away and apply then. Here are four implications. There are many more, but just four today. Four implications that come from knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection, experiencing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Here's the first one. You don't have to pay for your sins. You don't have to pay for your sins. Some of you are still trying really hard to do this. It's like we're still constantly trying to get God's attention. Did you see how I sacrificed? Did you see how much I gave? Did you see how I served? Did you see how long I prayed? Did you see how I could have had hurt that person, but I chose not to? It's like we're always trying to pay God off. We understand we have this sin debt and we think that if we just do good things and hope that God's seeing it, then everything will be okay. It's like you're constantly pounding and pounding and pounding away on this performance treadmill and you try harder and harder and harder to be better and better and better. But the problem is it will never deal with your sin. 
it won't deal with your guilt. All it will do, in the best case scenario, is just make you more self-righteous. And that's not a great place to be. Listen, Jesus paid for your sin. If you're trusting in his work on your behalf, he dealt with it. It's done. It's finished. You don't need to pay for your sin. It is done. He dealt with it. And the resurrection is like this cosmic receipt of that fact. Jesus dealt with your sin on the cross and through the resurrection, he proved it. It worked. It really happened. You get it? Christianity isn't all about guilt and condemnation and duty. It's not about working really hard to try and stay in God's good books. Jesus has opened the way for us to come close to him and know him. Not just know stuff about him in some dry, stuffy way. Really know him, really experience him. We we get to enjoy all the benefits of relationship with God, acceptance and forgiveness and grace and peace and life and joy. His powerful presence with us. And it's all because of Jesus. Let me try and drive this home with an illustration. Since the age of six, I've been a fanatical Everton supporter. As a child, much enthusiasm, more for that than any other point I've made, which is slightly disturbing. As a child, I read all the reports of their games. I could tell you the shoe size and the favourite pre-match meal of all of their players. I stuck posters of my favourite players on my bedroom walls. In fact, I still would if Helen would allow me. She doesn't allow me to use my Everton duvet colour or any of that stuff. I still have it but I don't use it. I used to go and watch them whenever they played near to my home, which sadly wasn't often because the local sides were Basingstoke and Aldershot and Farnborough and Woking. But about 12 years ago, one of my friends, a guy called Steve Bradley, he got an executive box at Goodison Park, Everton's home ground. And he told me that any game I wanted to go and watch, he would get me in for free. Not only that, He promised to show me around the ground and even suggested tentatively that I might be able to pop into the changing rooms before the game. Do you think I took him up on his offer? Of course I did. It didn't matter if I was having a really hard week. It didn't matter if I was incredibly busy. There I am, look, just to prove it. That is me. I know it doesn't look like that. 12 years ago, I looked like that. Uh, with my eyes closed. Um, And uh, it didn't matter if I was tired or ill or nothing was going to stop me from taking full advantage of that invitation. It was great. When I got to the ground, the stewards tried to stop me getting into the executive suite because, I mean, quite honestly, I didn't look important enough. But all I had to say was, I'm with Steve Bradley. And they moved aside and welcomed me in. I had complimentary drinks in the club bar. I even managed to have a quick kick around on the hallowed turf. I I didn't wash for years after that. I had a look around the changing rooms. As you can see, look at that. Sitting underneath Kevin Campbell's shirt. And not only that, his boots were there. I stroked his (laughs) boots. I hasten to add, he wasn't wearing them at the time, nor was anyone else watching. But I stroked his boots. And I kid you not, he actually scored a hat-trick in that game. Now, I, it got me thinking, I mean, if I'd been around to offer that service, I mean, who knows where Everton might be today, but I even had a meal in the director's restaurant, and all because, all because I was with Steve Bradley. 
Now, in a much greater way, in fact, a much, 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 much greater way, in some sense, that's what it's like with Jesus. Any time I want to spend time with my Heavenly Father, He gets me in. Sometimes I don't feel important enough. Most of the time, I'm acutely aware of my unworthiness. But it doesn't matter. My confidence is in Jesus' ability to present me spotless before his Father. Sometimes I feel down. Sometimes I feel very discouraged. Often I'm very busy and tired. Occasionally I'm unwell, but I can't keep away. It's like Jesus brings me right slap bang into the very presence of God, the one who made the universe and controls everything, everywhere, forevermore, the one who is intensely interested in me because every time he looks at me, for some reason, he sees his own wonderful son. All the time that I was relying on my pitiful CV, it's like I was dead to God, but now I'm free to know him personally. And it's all because of Jesus. That's the first implication of knowing him, experiencing him, and the power of his resurrection. Here's the second one. You don't have to fear death. You really don't have to fear death. There's something in us, isn't there, that desperately wants to be free of frailty and weakness and pain. I think this is where it comes from. There's a verse in the Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes. It says that God has set eternity in our hearts actor and film director Woody Allen, he once said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. (laughs) I think we can probably relate with that. There's something in all of us that that wants to be eternal, that wants to live and not die, to be healthy, contain yourself, to be healthy and not sick. That's, That's why some of us jog. That's why some of us insist on wearing a seatbelt. That's why we eat certain things and try and avoid other things. That's why some of us stretch and take vitamins and increasingly buy organic. Why do we do all that stuff? Because we don't want to die. Now, we can prolong our life. But regardless of what we do, we still live in fear of the inevitable. Our bodies are constantly getting older. And with this whole aging process comes the threat of illness and disease and ultimately death. It's like we do everything we can to try and avoid death. But the death rate still stands at 100%. And because of this, a lot of us are more than a little freaked out. There was a philosopher called Epicurus. I don't know whether he was uh, curious, but this was his observation. If we can be sure that death was annihilation or extinction, in other words, when you die, it's over. If we were sure that when we died, it was it, then we would have no fear of it. For as long as we exist, death isn't there. And when it does come, we no longer exist. But we cannot be sure that death is annihilation, that death ends it all. What people fear is not that death is annihilation. What people fear is that maybe death is not. That's what the Bible calls the sting of death. I mean, if we could be sure that death equaled non-existence, then we wouldn't fear it like we do. But we just can't be sure. There's something in us that says there might be an accounting for. There might be a judgment. And because of this, we're scared. It's like, that's the sting. The thought of forfeiting our life, well, that's unbelievably troubling. But standing before God 
and giving an account for our one and only life. That's terrifying. And we should be terrified. Because what the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27 is that we are destined to die once. And after that, to face judgment. But Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. The Bible says that every one of us will stand before God. Inescapable, we will. We all have to give an account for how we dealt with the sin problem. Do we try to cover our sins? Do we try to be our own saviour? Or do we allow God's provision of salvation for our sin to cover our sin? Did we try to do it? Or did we let God do it? That's what we stand before God with. And what Paul's saying in this passage in Philippians 3 is, personally, I don't intend to stand before God and show him my CV. And all the good things I did and all the bad things I didn't do, I'm not going to show him that in an attempt to prove that I deserve to go to heaven. Paul said, that's how I used to think until I met Jesus. But now, I consider all of that rubbish. Nowadays, I just have one thing on my CV, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. And when I stand before God at the end of time, and he asks me, well, why should I let you into my eternal kingdom? My answer will be, well, here's my CV. Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the perfect life. I haven't. Jesus died a death that I should have died, but he died in my place to pay the penalty for all of my sins. That's the basis of my confidence. He rose to give me new life. He takes away my sin. He he gives me his righteousness. We must, we really must live in the good of this. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it provides tremendous certainty. 1 John 5, 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may, is the word, know that you have eternal life. There's certainty. Not arrogance, but a, a comforting certainty regarding your standing before God. If you belong to Jesus, you don't have to fear death. Because of Jesus, we know we have eternal life. That's the third implication of knowing, experiencing Christ and the power of his resurrection. The third one is this. You don't have to spend your whole life looking in the rearview mirror. Some of you, I think you spend most of your days utterly and totally affected by your past. You're not looking ahead. You're not thinking about your future. You're not thinking about what could happen. You're thinking about what has happened, either because of your past mistakes and the consequences of them, or because you were sinned against in some way. And some of you are letting that event, or those series of events, you're letting your own sin, your own mistakes, the consequences of them, or you're letting someone else's sin against you define you. And I'm not minimizing your pain. In no way am I wanting to downplay your wounds or your hurt. I'm simply saying, No longer. Because of the resurrection, you don't need to let that define you. You don't have to spend the rest of your life looking back, looking in the rear view mirror. You can look ahead. 
Why? Because Jesus conquered death. And that which is dead in you, therefore can be raised. And that which is hurt in you, therefore can be healed. You see, the resurrection is like a prototype. It's like a blueprint of what will happen in us. The the dead can be raised. That which is barren can grow. That which is hurt can be healed. Because of the resurrection, there is better to come. So you can look ahead with hope. Then the fourth and final implication of knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection. Fourth implication of experiencing this in your life is you don't have to live this life in your own strength. You don't have to live this life in your own strength. Again, a lot of us are still trying to do that. And it is an incredibly negative experience. It's negative for the people around us, and it's negative for us as well. Because here's what happens when you try to live for God in your own energy, your own power, your own strength. First of all, you either do pretty well, and you end up self-righteous and proud. And so everyone who doesn't measure up ends up feeling judged and condemned and guilty whenever they're around you, whenever they're in the same room as you. And that's not great. Or maybe it doesn't go so well. And you serve, and you serve, and you serve, and you just feel further and further and further away from God. And so you get bitter. A lot of people in churches are bitter. Because God, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and you didn't show up, and things didn't work out as I would have liked. A lot of people are just pretty burnt out. And there are factors, and there are reasons, and There are seasons in life, and I get all of that, but a lot of the reason is they were trying to do God's work in their own strength, and they were never meant to do that. Maybe some of you are here today, and it feels like you're on the outside looking in, and you're like, Christians just seem really busy and really self-righteous, and they seem to have a slightly bitter tone to them, and a lot of them just seem really burnt out, and I mean, I've got enough problems of my own. I don't want any more, thank you very much. This is a huge issue. What Paul's wanting to drive home to us in this passage is, it isn't all about our power. We have divine resources, divine energy, divine power to draw on, to live the life that God has called us to live. We have divine power to draw on, to enable us to serve God in the way that he's called us to serve. We have divine power and energy and resources to enable us to worship him in the ways that he is worthy of. But it's not our strength and energy. It's his strength and his energy. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. It is all, all made possible by the power of the resurrection. So in conclusion, for some of us, maybe the application is simply this. We need to effectively rip up our CV. We've been perhaps trying to relate to God with our good works and our good life and feeling like it is really impressive but it's not working. And it's not working in two ways. It's not bringing you any nearer to God and it's not paying the sin debt that you owe him. 
So I want to say to you, stop trying to be your own saviour. Why don't you let Jesus be your saviour? Why don't you give him control? Why don't you say a prayer that goes something like this, God, I've been trying to be my own saviour. I stop. I've been trying to be my own boss. I'm not going to live that way anymore. You're my saviour. You're my Lord. I believe you rose from the dead. Give me all you are. And in return, I give you my one and only life. You can pray that prayer today. Won't you pray that prayer today? Some of you, it's like the light has been switched on a bit today. It's not about what I do. It's about what Christ has done. It's not about my work. It's about his work. It's not about my record morally. It's about Christ's record morally. And it's suddenly making a whole lot of sense to some of you right now. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. It's like you just need to start living in the good of God's grace. And then some of you, it's as though your whole life is still defined by your past. I just want to tell you, you can be free. You don't have to live that way anymore. You don't understand my pain. You don't understand what happened to me. You don't understand my life. I admit it, I don't. But God understands. And God knows you. And God has sent his son not only to die, but to live. So I want to challenge you today to give it up. Give it up as being your primary identity. Give it up. I'm the victim. Give it up. Some of you, maybe you're burnt out. Some of you are bitter because you've been trying to do this thing in your own strength. When you let go of it, when you give it up, this is your opportunity.